0: All right, so I'll bet, if you think about it, that there are times in your life when you have been blinded so much by what you might lose that you are unable to see the good that you can gain. I mean, think about it, and I'll bet, you, I'll bet you this time that that's been true. Maybe it's been some kind of a relationship that you've been in, whether it's a friendship group or a dating relationship or something where, where, where you know, you're, you're afraid of losing this thing. You might know that there's something not quite right and not the best and so on, but you're afraid of losing this friendship group and so on, that you, you don't want to let go of it, because, and so you can't see the better possibilities for you out there. Or maybe it's a job that you've been kind of stuck in with, and, uh, you know, but you, you just can't see the opportunities because you get kind of frozen because of fear or debts or who knows, uh, whatever. Or, or maybe, maybe it's a location. Maybe you were stuck in Hawaii and you didn't realize how much life better is here in Grand Prairie. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? But I, bet, I bet you there are times when, when you just... Uh, I, I'm blinded sometimes by the fear of what I might lose that I can't see the possibilities that are available. So last week, we dove into this this great sign. We're going through the Gospel of John, the central sign with the rising of Lazarus when everything's done, and Jesus has this great uh, statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, so they live, all that incredible stuff. And what we're going to do now is we look ahead and see how people respond to the resurrection of a dead man And the promise of Jesus that that though we can die, yet we can still live. How is it that people respond to this great act, this great truth? And we're going to see that for many, as we focus particularly on the leadership, they were so blinded by what they were afraid they might lose, that they just couldn't bring themselves to see what there was to gain. Now, a couple of weeks ago, When Ed was preaching, he alerted us that one of the things that John does is a great use of irony. And as we read this passage together, you're going to see uh, all kinds of, of irony that John uses to make a bit of a point. So let's take a look at John chapter 11. We're going to start with verse 45. Therefore... Many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did. They believed in him. I mean, that's surely a reasonable response. You see somebody who's dead, been in the grave for several days, and now they come out and they believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is kind of an interesting, here's your first bit of irony. The Sanhedrin, do you know what the Sanhedrin is? The Sanhedrin, 71 guys... And they were sort of the religious, legal, administrative rulers of, of, of the Jews. They met in the temple, in a place called the, the, the Room of Hewn Stones, and they would decide all of these things, and they were made up The majority of them were Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they were sort of the elite of Israel. The high priest of the Sadducees, they sort of had control of the temple by this time. Kind of the influential families, and, and there were some scribes in there, and there were also some Pharisees, and they weren't, they were kind of like the middle class, but they were, you know, respected by the people. But here's the thing, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they didn't get along very well. Uh, because the Pharisees thought that the Sadducees were compromisers, which, honestly, they were kind of in cahoots with Herod, who was in cahoots with Rome, and all this sort of thing. Uh, but the big thing that they disagreed with is the resurrection. Because the Sadducees, you know the little saying, right? The Sadducees neither believed in the resurrection nor spirits. That's why they are so Sadducee, right? Right. So you remember that, okay? That's what they did. And the Pharisees, their whole deal was built on the hope of the resurrection. And so they were very antagonistic toward each other. They didn't like each other at all. But here's what's ironic. It's this issue of a resurrection that brings them together. They take their biggest point of difference. And they're going to get together because Jesus... Raise somebody from the dead, and they're arguing about that. Okay, so there's your first little bit. Okay, let's keep going. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. Did that whole, so far this year. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Well, of course, the, the irony there is, is it wasn't the temple, It was God the Father's temple. Remember, Jesus went in, he cleansed the temple. Hey, what are you doing with my Father's house of prayer? And what's even more ironic than that, that Jesus is the true temple. Remember that whole thing, that the temple is just a place where God touches earth. And Jesus is the true temple, and they're going to get rid of the true temple. They're saying we're going to preserve the temple, but really what we want to do is kill the temple. And our nation, the only true Israelite was Jesus. And that's, you know, go through the New Testament and Jesus becomes becomes Israel. And so here they are saying, we're going to preserve our nation and the temple, but actually what they're going to do is destroy them both. All right, verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You don't know what you're talking about. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people Then the whole nation perish. Now here's some more irony. The high priest is supposed to be the ultimate shepherd of Israel. He was the chief shepherd, right? That's the image we looked at that when Jesus was the good shepherd. And he is going to actually kill the chief best shepherd. And so it's just dripping with, with these weird ironic statements that are going on here. Now he did not say this on his own. But as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one so that from that day on, they plotted or they schemed or, or the word actually means like they got right down to business and they came up with an actual plan as to how they would take Jesus' life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. You see what's going on here. You see these Jewish leaders who are supposed to know better, but, but they're absolutely blinded by what they're afraid to lose, that they don't see the possibilities that Jesus is offering them. They were blinded, of course, first of all, by their social power. They said, listen, we're going to lose the nation. We are the leaders of the nation. We get to make all the decisions. We're the bosses. We've got this high status and all these things. And if we let this Jesus carry on, then we're going to lose that social power. We're not going to be running things anymore. The Romans are going to come in. And and the very limited freedom that we've got, they're going to take that away. Our stature is going to be taken away. We've got our identity and our pride on the line here because if they come and take this away, this Jesus is threatening everything that I'm proud of, everything that I am, my entire identity is wrapped up in this and if we let this Jesus carry on, our identity is going to be wiped out and changed because we didn't shut this guy up. So they had this social power and they were afraid they were going to lose their influence and their social status and their special being and all of these different things they also were blinded by the religious power that they had. As I mentioned, they were, they were in control of the temple. And the temple was, was, was not only the, the social and uh, political center for Israel, it obviously functioned mostly as the religious center. And, and, and they had control of it. That's why the Essenes went out into the desert, because they looked at what the Sadducees were doing and said, these guys are so corrupt, we're out of here, because they, they don't have the spiritual character to be our leader. So they went off into the desert and you've heard about the Qumran trolls. So they were very, 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 very corrupt, but they had the religious power and they controlled the people's relationship with God, they thought, because they would say who comes in, who goes out, who makes the sacrifices, where you buy the sacrifices, all those things. And notice that they had the spiritual, they wanted to control what people believed if we let this guy carry on, more and more people are going to believe in him. And we want to be the ones that say how people are to believe and what people are to believe. And, of course, Caiaphas. He was going to lose everything. Because he was the chief priest. He was the top guy. He's the one that had the most influence, and the most power, and was the one that dictated so much of what was going on. And so here they, they were blinded by these things. And, and so when you read it at first, you might kind of wonder, why, how, how could they not believe in Jesus? How could, how could this possibly happen that Jesus raises somebody from the dead, makes a big deal of it, makes a big show of it, makes sure he's dead, all that stuff we looked at last week, and they still won't believe in him? I'll tell you why. Because of willful blindness. Because they had it good. They liked the way it was. And they were afraid that they were going to lose what they liked. And the truth is, something that they knew. They understood and they knew that if Jesus really is who Jesus claims to be, then everything about my life, everything about our society, everything about my choices, everything about my identity, everything about my priorities, everything about my stature, every single thing of my life has to change if Jesus really is the Son of God lord of life over death. Everything changes. Everything's up for grabs. Nothing is the same again. You've got to give them credit. They understand that. It's one of the things that I think in our society we forget. We kind of think you can take, you know, a little bit of Jesus and everything else carries on the same way. Our, our priorities, our identity, our purpose, our, our, our money, our social structure, our political belief. We think everything just kind of stays the same. No. They understood what we need to understand. If Jesus really is Lord, every single thing in my life changes, if that's true. And they were not ready to give that up. Because their life was good. And so acting out of self-interest, they were blinded by how much more things could be. Because things were good. But maybe the greatest irony of all in this whole little story here is what they thought they had, they didn't even really have. In spite of their nations, actions, more and more people believed in Jesus. They didn't have control over whether or not people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The nation was not theirs. The nation belongs to God. Israel was God's people, his family, his children. The temple was not their temple. It was the Father's temple. And in 40 years from this time, the Romans were going to come and take it apart brick by brick by brick. If you go there to Israel today, to Jerusalem, you can see the stones are just still piled up there from when the Romans did it there in the 70s. They lost their temple anyway. And this whole thing about the, the, the high priest is kind of interesting. Here's one of the things I learned this week. You notice that little phrase there? Because Caiaphas, he was high priest this year. We probably skipped over it like I have done for many, many decades. Here's the thing. A high priest was supposed to be chosen for their lifetime. Once you were a high priest, you were a high priest until you kicked off. But what had happened is, by, by this time in history, the high priest was essentially chosen by Rome. Now what happens is, so some of the liberal scholars, when John Rice says he was high priest this year, they sort of accuse John, see this isn't an authentic letter from John, because any Jew would know that a high priest is high priest for life, and so he, because he says it's just a high priest just for this year, you know, it, it's probably not scripture, it's probably, he doesn't know what he's talking about No, 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 what this is, this is John sticking the knife in the side a little bit. We all know that he's supposed to be the high priest for a lifetime, and he thinks he's got this great position. But he doesn't even realize that it's actually Rome who's given him that position. It's actually the people who he thinks is their enemy who's given this position. And there's this irony in here that he's trying to hold on to the high priesthood. But it was very short because Rome dictated in those days who was going to be high priest. And so there's this incredible thing that, that they think they have all of this. And they're blinded to what Jesus is saying because they want to grab on to something and what they had was actually an illusion anyhow. Man, we can fall into that. We can fall into thinking that we've got stuff that we're going to hold on to and we're going to cling to. But really, we don't have any control over it. Really, it's a... a, You know, I might think that my life is full without Jesus but there's so much more because it's Jesus that gives the abundant life. I might feel like I know what my identity is as a, you know, as a son, as a business person, as a professional, as a tradesperson, as a mum, as a, you know, whatever the thing is. And we might think that, that that's, that's all there is and not understand that, yeah, that's true, but your identity in Christ is so much more. And it can be never shaken, and it can be never taken away, and it's not dependent upon anybody else or anything else. It is yours forever in Jesus. And it might be that you have a sense of purpose in your life, and it might be a very good purpose, but compared to a purpose that changes the eternity for nations and for people that we love and care about, that purpose is much less than it can be. And so they were blinded to these things. But let's flip it around. Let's imagine that that they opened their eyes, that we open up our eyes and and see, not not the things that we're clinging to, but the possibilities, the probabilities, the guarantees that Jesus gives us. Uh, The first one is the most obvious at all because this whole thing came up because Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. If they would open their eyes, they'd understand that they would have a saviour with power over death. We all die. You're dying. I'm thinking a lot about this this week because uh, on middle of the week I had a funeral service for Mary Weeb, who when she was ten here before she got married she was Mary Radlick, and Marge Scruggs of the Scruggs family. Preachers in Alberta, it's a big thing. She just dies Friday, Friday this weekend. And what's interesting is that both of these women look forward to death. And I told their families, i like, I just want to go. Because my body's worn out, the people I love are gone, I'm so restricted, I, I just want to see Jesus. I just want to go. I want the fullness of life. Because we know how the story ends. No more fear in life or death. And there's this marvelous reality that no matter what goes on in life, I would just love that we're still the songs we were singing today just lined right up. It's almost like God. Good job. You know, one of my one of my favorite passages of scripture. Um, I mean, the problem is every passage of scripture becomes your favorite after you spend enough time with it. But in First Corinthians chapter 15, you know, that's the great resurrection passage, and Paul is writing about. Uh, These bodies which fail, which get diseased, which wear out. How it's perishable and how it's going to be exchanged for something that lasts forever. And this is what he says. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal with immortality. It's not just a spirit floating around up there on the clouds. It's, it's, it's a body, but it's a different kind of body. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. And here's this awesome part. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, oh death? is your sting because we follow the one who is the Lord of life and death and life again and you can gain that but they were blind to it the other thing if they would just have their eyes open they'd understand that they would have the reality of the presence of God and an intimate relationship with him I mean that was the whole thing about looking after the temple as I said the temple and the holy of holies was the place where God was present on earth and they wanted to preserve that and they didn't understand that Jesus is saying listen you can have my presence with you and amongst you wherever you are all of the time for where two or three are gathered in my name there I am present the living God the Lord of life in your midst with you in your conversation in your life in your decisions in your joy in your sorrow in your worry in your fear, in your victory, I, Jesus, am present right there with you. And not only will I be there amongst you, but I will send my spirit and I will dwell within you. Because you gathered people are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you, follower of Jesus in yourself, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're thinking about you want the presence of God, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. Because I'm gonna be right there with you. And you don't even have to be, you know, in a worship service. I'm gonna be dwelling in your heart as you follow me. Then if they open their eyes, and if I will open my eyes and you will open your eyes, you'll see the true high priest. Not the Caiaphas who is corrupt. And even his fellow believers who were sincere in their following had to say, this guy is just bad news. Instead, we would get the true high priest. I get to slide in a bunch of my favorite passages on this thing. And I love the book of Hebrews. You know, if you want to do an interesting study, do a study on Jesus as the high priest in the book of Hebrews. It's it's a great thing. And listen to this marvelous passage of scripture, which you hear me kind of quoting quite a bit. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest... A priest, is, a priest is somebody who bridges, okay? Between people and God. That's what a bridge is, okay? Therefore, since we have a great high priest... Who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith which we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted, even as we are. And yes, we're without sin. And here we go. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, with delight, with certainty, with surety. So that why we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then if you, if you read on a little bit farther, there's a little bit, another great little passage here in chapter 7. It says, listen, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. It's not just for the life on earth. It's not just for as long as, as Rome says, you get to be high priest. No, Jesus is high priest forever and ever and ever. Look, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because, look at this, he always lives to intercede for them, to intercede, to plead the case, to say, hey, listen, Father, look at your son, Alan. Look at him. Look how he's struggling. Look how he's repented. Look how he's wandering away from you. Look how his attitudes need to change. Look how he's looking for forgiveness. Look how he's celebrating this victory. Father, do you see this? And Jesus intercedes on your behalf and on my behalf all of the time. The living Christ pleads your case in the circumstances of your life. The living Jesus knows your circumstance and speaks to the Father about you and the things that you're wrestling with. He intercedes in our half. That such a high priest truly meets our needs. The one who is holy and blameless and pure. Not like Caiaphas not like me, not like you, but one who can function as the great high priest and fight on your side. What a tremendous thing. And if they could just open their eyes, they would see the true high priest, the holy and blameless one who argues your case for you, who prays for you, And then, if you go on, if they would just understand that, if they would open their eyes, they could see that they could have a varied family in the faith bound together by Jesus' blood. Caiaphas didn't understand what he was saying when he talked about that. He didn't say this on his own, verse 51 says, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now, some people think that, that the scattered children of God is talking about the Jews who are scattered in the despair, who are down throughout the nations. But, but no, you know what it is? It's you and me. You and me bound together by everybody of every creed and every color and every nation. When our creed becomes that Jesus is the son of the living God. And in these days, when the world is being torn apart, in Europe and in the Middle East, with war and terrorism and destruction and bloodshed and terror and fear and hatred and reprisals, as nation after nation tries to overtake other nations and take back land to keep land, (laughs) fight Jesus says look the blood that needs to be shed is the blood of Jesus and I've already shed it and if you will understand that if you would come in me then you don't need to shed each other's blood anymore because I will make you one family, bound together by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of God Himself, to take the scattered, confused children and bring them together as one. And then if they would open their eyes, that they would see that there's a ministry for God in spite of ourselves, a purpose for us that's beyond ourselves. Rick Watts, in his lecture on this passage, he goes on and on a big deal about, about how look at Caiaphas, that this, this corrupt guy, this guy that that, you know, was going to be the enemy of God and and was in cahoots with Rome, and you know, just a political maneuver and you know, two-faced and all of these different things. This guy that has God flowed through him to bring about his purposes. And what goes on and talks about all the people in Scripture, not all of them, but a bunch of them in Scripture, were people who are broken and and, uh, misaligned and and selfish and, and, and all of this stuff, and yet God flows through them. And it's true for us. That no matter what, God can use us to achieve his purposes. So we must not let our past or our weaknesses blind us to the way that God can flow through us and bring about his kingdom of grace in the lives of the people that are around us. We can't let our failures stop us and be afraid to reach out and try and touch somebody with grace because we messed up last time we tried to do it. Or because they know the problems in our life or they know the sin or whatever. God says, no, 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 you need to understand that, that I use broken people and often I'll use them even in the midst of their brokenness. So don't let your past, don't let your present, don't let your commitments, don't let your full schedule, don't let your fears hinder you from saying, yes, Jesus, Holy Spirit, flow through me. I know I've got all of this stuff going on and everybody around me know that I've got all this stuff going on too. But that's part of your glory is that he flows through us even when we've got stuff going on. That's God's grace. It's so easy to be blinded what may be because we are afraid to let go of what we have. So I just want to finish off by just giving us some time to reflect. And to just ask the Holy Spirit Maybe he wants to show us a little bit about something that I'm so afraid of losing that I'm blinded to what could be. Maybe it's some commitment. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's some belief about yourself or or other people. Maybe it's your sense of of identity and and who you are, who you've been told you are. Or maybe it's the big one. That you think you're the Lord of your life and the boss of your destiny. And the Holy Spirit just needs to realize that, oh no, you're not. I don't know, Melissa, can you do a little bit? So let's just take some time and just ask the Holy Spirit. Lord, is there something that is blinding me because i got a hold of this. I'm afraid to let go of this. And so I can't even see what you have for me in the future. Let's just pray a little bit. And then I'll close after you've had a time to meditate. Jesus, you know that there's places and times in my life where I'm afraid to let go because I don't know the future, I don't see the future, and so I'm blinded by fear or selfishness or status quo, sometimes even by things that I know are sin. somehow have grown comfortable with it. And it's a poor substitute for the realities of life that you have in mind for us. Holy Spirit, if there are places, expressions, relationships, commitments, positions, possessions, beliefs, that we're afraid to let go of or we're stubbornly holding on to. Spirit, help us to loosen our grip on those things, to be able to recognize that it's less than what you have for us. Open up our eyes, Jesus. Help us to overcome any stubborn blindness we may be living in. So we can see you for who you are. And in seeing you for who you are, know who we are. Know your love for us, your grace for us, your truth for us, your promise for us. So help us to step out of blindness and have sight and live in light and then have a testimony to reach others and say hey may the spirit open your eyes because what you're holding to is a bit of an illusion or less than it might be good but it's not great so that people can have the fullness of life and you receive all of the glory so that your will will be done in our lives and on this earth because your will is good and we trust this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.